Uh, it's, without a doubt, it's been a tough week. Um, this on, you know, pretty much all of it. <laughs> and um, I had travel out of town. It was a, there, there was complications and difficulties. And, and this week qualified for me to be put in a certain category. I call it the EGR category. Does anybody have a clue what that might mean? Extra grace required. <laughs> Who knows what I'm talking about today? Have you ever had a week that was an EGR week for you? <laughs> but thankfully, we can claim the words given to the Apostle Paul when the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Who's thankful for that today? <clears throat> I'm cert I certainly am. I'm probably going to need even more grace for this week, but I know that God is going to supply. Um, can I step a little bit outside the box today? Just a little bit? Just a lot? Um, I think many pastors make the assumption that most of the time their congregation would prefer to hear a sermon on God's love, God's mercy and forgiveness, on, on how to be a better person, on grace, grace, and more grace, or anything that might produce warm fuzzies and feel good. And those are certainly good things to talk about, and there's a place for them. But there are also less comfortable topics that need to be addressed from time to time for the spiritual health and well-being of a fellowship. And guess what? Today is your lucky day. I'm going to take this sermon, take this time in the next few minutes that you will hopefully graciously give me and let me unpack all of this. I hope you will. I'm going to talk today about the enemy of our souls, Satan himself. Certainly not to exalt him nor give him undue attention. But in the words of the Apostle Paul, I take on this topic today, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And I don't want any of you to walk out of here ignorant today. So, the title of this message is, let's talk about it. We're going to talk about it. Um, I have to say, I found it interesting, the timing of how the Lord dropped this in my heart and how this came together Seth's word that I received early this morning with a great sense of promise and hope uh, for a bright future. And so it, my first thought would have been, oh, I, I should be preaching on something that is rousing and, and, and bright future-ish, whatever that means. Um, and then I thought, no, I think this is probably just about right because the enemy would come after us in any number of ways, and so we're going to talk about it. Is that okay today? The truth is, much of the Bible is about the enemy's tactics and God's triumph over them, from Genesis to Revelation, from cover to cover. It's about the enemy trying to stop the Lord and the advancement of the kingdom of God, and then the Lord responding to that uh, effort of the enemy with, nice try, nice try. So if much of the Scripture is about the work of the enemy and then God's triumph, why would we dare to think that our lives would be any different? As a pastor, it's easy for me to become concerned 
that the people of God can become so focused on, uh, these are good things, but can become so, um, maybe the word I'm wanting to use is infatuated, with the goodness of God, with the mercy of God, with the faithfulness of God, with the blessings of God, that we can loosen our grip of understanding that no matter how long you have served the Lord, there is still an enemy out there with a much different plan than the plan of God for your life. And he still has you in his crosshairs. Boy, that was a rousing hallelujah I got out of that. So if you will turn to the book of Nehemiah, please. Turn to Nehemiah. I think we'll find some things in a little nine-verse passage here that will help us with our understanding of this topic. For when we look at what the enemy was trying to do to Nehemiah, we cannot help but see some very strong parallels to what the enemy yet even today is trying to pull on us. So I'm going to set in place and declare today that our text is Nehemiah chapter 6, the first nine verses of Nehemiah chapter 6, and we'll be going through it. I'll obviously have other verses that I uh, intersperse throughout, but this is our text if you want to stay in Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, where we find Nehemiah saying this, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies... Does that make it clear who this group is? And who this bunch is, Nehemiah says? So these dudes and the rest of our enemies found out that I had finished rebuilding the wall and that no caps remained, though we had not set up the doors in the gates. So Sanballat and Geshem sent a message asking me to meet them at Starbucks. Oh, that's not right asking me to meet them at one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But I realized that they were really, they were just plotting to harm me. So I replied by sending this message to them. I'm engaged in a great work, so I can't come. Why should I stop working to come and meet with you? Four times they sent the same message. And each time, I gave the same reply. The fifth time, Sanballat's servant came. They tried another way to go about it, I guess. Sanballat's servant came with an open letter. Uh, Some versions say unsealed uh, letter in his hand. And this is what the letter said from the group of enemies. You know, there's a rumor among the surrounding nations and Geshem tells me it's true, that you and the Jews, Nehemiah, are planning to rebel, and that's why you're building the wall. According to his reports, you, you plan to be their king. He also reports that you have appointed prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim about you, look, there is a king in Judah. Well, you can be very sure that this report will get back to the king which would be Nehemiah's boss, Artaxerxes. This will get back to the king, so I suggest that you come and talk it over with me. Nehemiah says, so I replied, you liar. There is no truth in any part of your story. You're making the whole thing up. They were just trying to intimidate us, Nehemiah says, imagining that they 
could discourage us and stop the work. So I continued the work with even greater determination. In this little nine-verse passage that we read this morning, it's almost as if it's like being handed the playbook of the enemy before the game. Imagine in any game of sports, if you had the playbook in advance and you knew every play that was going to be run in that, in that game, it would give you incredible advantage. This is what we get in these nine verses in Nehemiah. It's like the playbook of the enemy. And if you and I will listen to the word this morning and recognize the schemes of the enemy, it will give us great understanding as to how he operates and possibly what he's trying to do even in your life, maybe even this very day or in this season of time. So let's talk about it. Let's pour over this passage and recognize the schemes, the devices, the strategies of the enemy. It was uh, just last week that Stephen Evans talked to us about putting on the full armor of God wonderfully well. And verse 11 of that uh, sixth chapter of Ephesians tells us why that we are to put on the full armor of God, so that we can stand firm against all the devices or all the strategies of the devil. That's why we're to put it on. But just before we dive uh, in to unpack the devices of the enemy, which I'm going to give to you, I recommend you may want to jot a thing or two down. I have to start by asking you the big question of this sermon. You know, I've always told you that sermons ought to ask a question. The big question of this sermon is to you is this. What are you trying to build? What is it that you're trying to build? And I frame that question within the understanding is of what is it that you are doing to advance the kingdom of God? What is it that you are trying to build? We know that Nehemiah was sent to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, and he was, he was doing something great. He was building something great. But it wasn't until he was doing something great that the enemy even took notice of him. Which leads me to say this. If the enemy is not bothering you right now, you ought to be concerned about that. That ought to be a problem with you. Most of us think we ought to be trying to get through life to get the enemy completely off our back. Leave us alone. If he's leaving you alone, it's a good indication you're not doing something that's bothering him. And you may not be doing anything that's actually advancing the kingdom of God. You're not doing something that's worthy of the enemy's attention. For if you are building something which does advance the kingdom of God, then you will get the enemy's attention, let me just tell you. Anything worthy in the advancement of God's kingdom will attract the devil's devices. How many know that's true? In fact, you could even take some comfort in knowing that the enemy is coming after you, then you must be doing something right. Let me give you a quick example. Uh, Our text today is in Nehemiah 6, but about four chapters back in the second chapter, let, let me show you this. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite uh, of, official heard of my arrival, this is Nehemiah still speaking, they were very displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel. Now, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, these are the enemies. These are the bad guys, okay? And they were displeased that he had come, that Nehemiah had come to help the people of Israel. They were not upset that Nehemiah uh, showed up. That wasn't the problem. They were upset at what he had come to do. 
which tells me to tell you today, Satan doesn't care that you're in church today. He doesn't care. That's not bothering him. But he very much cares about what you're going to do with what you hear in church today. That's the problem for him. He very much cares about what you're going to do to advance the kingdom of God with the truth that you're going to receive today. And you may say, well, pastor, you know, I'm not a missionary, I'm not an evangelist, I'm not a pastor of a church, so I'm not really out there advancing the kingdom of God. And to that I say, wrong. You're wrong. Building a godly marriage is advancing the kingdom of God. Raising godly children is advancing the kingdom of God. Are you asleep on me today? It's not just by starting some nonprofit or having your name in lights for doing something that gets lots of attention that means that's the only time that you're advancing the kingdom of God. You advance God's kingdom when you do the simple godly things like sharing your faith helping your neighbor, feeding the poor or the disenfranchised, tithing on your income, stewarding well what God has provided for you, standing for justice against the oppressed, simply doing the things that Jesus taught us to do. That's advancing the kingdom of God. When you do these kinds of things, you will, count on it, gain the enemy's attention. And when you do gain the enemy's attention, it is very helpful to know what his playbook is. So I'm going to help you this morning. Seven truths from the devil's devices that we see in this passage from Nehemiah. Now, you know, Satan is really not all that creative. In fact, he's using the same tactics, the same tools that he did did back then. Uh, back in our first verse of our text, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of the enemies found out that I had finished building the wall. Well, let me tell you a little something about these three guys that I haven't, I haven't mentioned yet. They were all very different. They were all three from different places, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. They were all from different places, but they had this one thing in common. Listen to me, listen. This one thing in common. All three of them were from east east of the Jordan River, and they did not belong in the promised land. When they came all upset about Nehemiah and what he was doing, they were going into territory that did not belong to them. They weren't from there. They had no ownership, no right of voice, no right of opinion. And so truth number one for you today on the devil's devices is this, and they're going to be on this wall, the enemy will cross your borders. That's number one. Got the wrong one. Let's start with number one. The enemy will cross your borders. Say that with me. He will go into places where he has no authority where he has no right to make any determination, where his opinion doesn't matter. He will cross your borders. But just because he doesn't have authority does not mean that he won't visit you there because he will. But let us never forget, church, that the blood of Jesus has authority over everything the enemy would say or do. Oh, come on, church. The blood of Jesus is over it all. But know this well, he's going to cross the border and he's going to visit your marriage. 
He's going to visit your finances. He's going to cross the border, and he's going to come into your mind. He's going to cross borders and go into places where he does not belong because Jesus even told us in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. But my purpose, Jesus said, is to give them a rich and satisfying life so that they might have life. Another way of grasping that verse is this. The enemy comes to steal all that Jesus came to give you. So if you want to know what the enemy has come to steal, it's really very simple. You ask yourself, then what did what the enemy has come to steal? What did Jesus come to give? That's what he's trying to take away from you. Your joy, your peace, your salvation, your righteousness, he's come to take that away. Your patience, he's come to take away your purity, he's come to take away your eternity. Every place where Satan does not belong is exactly the place where you will find him, and it's usually where you will even least expect him. Back to verse 1 of our text of chapter 6 of Nehemiah. Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies found out that I had finished rebuilding the wall. One more time in unison. And... Though we had not set up the doors in the gates. Nehemiah seemed very proud of saying this. There's not one single gap left in that wall. It, well, except for where I haven't hung the doors yet at the gates. But no, there's not one gap. You won't find one gap in that wall. Truth number two is this the enemy will always look for a door. Would you say it, please? If you've ever had the misfortune of, a, of a, having an infestation of mice in your attic, and you're dumbfounded as how those little critters could have possibly gotten up there, you thought they came from the field someplace, just go, do not do it now. I repeat, do not do it now. But go check out YouTube clips sometimes of mice scaling a brick wall. Maybe you've seen them. They can just scamper right up there with no problem. And then they are able to get through cracks that are only a fraction of the width of their body, maybe half or less. They can squeeze themselves through that. They can find uh, little cracks in which you would never assume that they, could, they or anybody else could get through. And Nehemiah had built the entire wall, appeared very proud of his accomplishment. Hey, guys, we're done. No gaps at all. Look at this thing. It's amazing. No gaps. All we have to do is put the doors on. I, it reminds me of what Peter gives us in 1 Peter chapter 5. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a looking for a gap, looking for someone to devour. So today, okay, maybe you're able to say, you know what? I feel like my marriage is good. Um, I, I think our finances are they're in good shape. So like Nehemiah, you're kind of saying, the wall is built. Look at it. The wall is built. Not a gap in that wall anywhere. You look at it, not. Let me challenge you to think this way. But if I had a gap, where would it be? If I had a gap, where would it be? 
For most men, it would be the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. If your wife is not loving you the way you think you deserve to be loved, then brother, you have a gap in your wall. For most women, you are more likely to have a desire for your emotional needs to be met, and there may well be a gap in your wall. If you have, I know you don't, I know you built that wall well, I know that. But if you had a gap with your kids, where would it be? Where would it be? It might be when they take a device to their room for an hour with the door closed, you think? You may think you know what's going on. You may think you've got that thing all protected. You may think you have a good grasp on it. But any youth pastor today, including the one that serves this house, will tell you that most parents are naive when it comes to knowing the full activity of their children. And what you think they don't know yet, they probably learned a long time ago. And they figured out how to keep you from knowing that they know it. It's a pretty much 100% of the time thing that we discover. Your kids, like all kids, are susceptible to the culture they live in. And they're susceptible to the friends that they hang out with. And you could be building the most beautiful wall, taking every precaution to see that your kids are insulated from every evil thing. But do you ever stop to think, what doors have I not hung yet? I don't have any gaps in that wall, but I haven't put the doors in yet. What doors have you not hung yet? This brought to mind as I was putting this together, a verse of scripture that a good friend of mine, Pastor Tim Delina, likes to mention often that he's pounded in his kids from that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 15. And I recommend it. I recommend you get your kids to memorize it. I recommend that you write it on their bathroom mirror I recommend that you put it on the refrigerator because they visit that often or the pantry door often. I recommend that you make them quote it to you before they walk out the door every morning. And it says this, is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, bad company corrupts good character. Say it. Bad good That's the words of Paul. That's Bible. Your kids need to know that. If you had a gap in the wall, where would it be? Because the enemy is always looking for a door. What about your money? If the enemy was going to creep into your finances, I wonder where he would do that. Hmm. If the enemy was going to creep into my mind, where would he have the easiest access? Thought I had it all, you know, a no-gap wall here. Hmm, where would, it's a good question to ask yourself, where have I failed to hang a door? Verse 2 of our text says, So Sanballat and Geshem sent a message asking me to meet them at one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But I realized they were plotting to harm me. Truth number three this morning is the enemy is continually sending messages. All the time. All the time, thoughts, jealousies, comparisons, things that emerge in your heart from looking at social media, 
so many different kinds of messages. If you don't believe me, just ask Eve. The serpent was whispering messages to her the whole time, way back at the beginning in chapter three of Genesis, to things like, surely the Lord didn't say that. Why would he keep you from that tree? That's ridiculous. Sure, use your brain here. Use your common sense. Be pragmatic. Come on. Did he really say that? You will surely not die, Eve. Messages, messages. Continually sending messages. Subtle, sneaky, devious. And I want you to notice, speaking of subtle, that in Nehemiah's case, the plan of the guys, the enemy guys, was not to destroy him. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem were not, they weren't plotting to chop his head off. They weren't laying an ambush for, some, for him someplace. Their tactic was not to destroy Nehemiah. Their tactic was to distract him from the work of the advancing, advancement of the kingdom of God. That was the plan. Not destroy, distract. And Nehemiah kept responding, as we read this morning in our text, I will not stop the work to come down and talk to you. Not going to happen. Not going to do it. Distraction, distraction. Man, I'm so convicted by that. I don't know about you. What is distracting me today? You know, I got a little bit of ADD going on, and so do most of you. Squirrel, rabbit. Someone's walking in the balcony right now. I got all that going on, just like you do. Distractions. Sometimes that's the subtle, that's in the playbook, by the way. It's in the playbook. What's distracting you today from advancing the kingdom of God? What's, it, what's distracting you? I will not allow my mind to be distracted by the continuing messages coming from the enemy. And you need to be aware that it is entirely possible this very day that the enemy is not trying as hard to destroy you. You'd see that. That's like showing up with the red suit and the horns and the pitchfork, okay? You'd figure that one out. He isn't trying as hard to destroy you as he is trying to distract you. For here's the bottom line, church. The devil's primary purpose is to hinder the advancement of the kingdom of God. That's at the bottom line of the whole thing. Number one plan is to hinder the advancement of the kingdom of God. And if you're in his way, then he is out to distract you too. You, precious one, are not exempt. Just like I'm not exempt. But we stand strong in this. As children of God, Satan cannot stop us. He can surely try to hinder us, and often his tool to do so is to distract us. I also want to say this. The devil cannot destroy the church of the living God because Jesus is the one who said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He cannot destroy the church, but he sure can distract it. God help us. He cannot destroy your marriage, but he can certainly distract it. He cannot destroy your children, but he can certainly distract them. He cannot destroy your calling, but he can certainly distract it with something called comfort. Oh, I'm called to do this. I'm 
called to do that. Wonderful. Why are you distracted by comfort? Was comfort part of the plan? He is constantly sending messages. And you and I need to discern the difference of when you get a text message from Satan or a text message from the Holy Spirit. It's not the same. Verse 4 of our text. Four times they sent the same message. And each time I gave the same reply. Finally, the fifth time, Sanballat's servant came with the open letter in his hand. Truth number four, the enemy is persistent. Now, I've been in the church a long time, so I think I'm qualified to address this. We can easily be lulled into thinking things like this. Oh, I know the devil's going to fight. I, you know, I think about once every six months or so, he's going to come around. And I just, I, if I'll just rebuke the devourer, then, I, then I'll be good for a while. And surely, he, you know, I'll resist the enemy. He'll flee from me. But you need to be told the truth today. It's this. Every single day, he's coming after you. He doesn't take a vacation. He's persistent. Every single day. And he really only has a few tricks, not all that creative. His playbook is not all that expensive. And Nehemiah says, four times. Those dudes sent me the same message. Four times. And some of you in this room, some of us in this room, struggle with the same thing over and over again. Some of you continually have, I don't think I'm good enough. I don't think I'm smart enough. I don't think, ladies would say, I don't think I'm pretty enough. You guys, you're not pretty enough. I'm pretty enough. And he keeps sending you the same message because he is persistent. Now, there's a lot of things I am not, and one of them is I am not a fisherman. I know that's a big surprise to you. And one very good reason, I am way too impatient. The people that I know that, that are good at fishing, they've got this patience thing going on that I seem to miss that component somewhere along the way. As soon as the fish stop biting, they're done, I'm done, let's go. But I'm told that a really good persistent fisherman, something they do is they, will, they, they think different. They, they'll, they'll say, you know, let's try a different lure. We're going to keep at this, but let's try a different lure. You know what? We, we, we started at 2 o'clock today. Let's come really early in the morning, tomorrow morning. Let's come at a different time than we did, did today. And because he is persistent, you know what the devil can do? He'll say, hmm, let me... Let me use this little shinier lure over here. Let me, let me use this, diff, this different bait. She seems really tired now, so let's try this lure on her this time. Let's, let's, she's a little bit worn down. I, I bet she'll bite on this one. He's been, trying to, he's been trying to build his business, and, you know, COVID hit, and racial tension hit the country, and then we had that big old ice snowstorm. I, I, bet, I bet he's pretty weary now <laughs> dealing with all this stuff. Let's throw out that other bait. It didn't work last year, but I'm pretty sure it's going to work this year. The enemy is persistent, and he is casting his lines on the lake of your life every single day. You have not graduated beyond that point. Sanballat's servant came with a letter here's what the letter said. This letter said, there's a rumor among the surrounding nations, oh, 
And even Geshem says it's true. It's like saying I saw it on Facebook. Geshem tells me it's true that you and the Jews, Nehemiah, you're, you're planning to rebel. That's why you're building this wall. What's he doing? He's telling lies. Truth number five, the enemy is a deceiver. He's a master of lies. Now, you know that, but you need to really know it. John 8, 44 says, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. By the way, um, uh, my native language is English. It's also my only language. I don't have any other language. When Satan speaks in his native language, every word that comes out of his mouth is a lie because he knows no other language. Am I telling you the truth? This message that Nehemiah received from Sanballat's servant is just a picture, perfect picture of the enemy. He was trying to drive Nehemiah to a place of fear. That's why these lies came. These lies had a purpose behind them. They were to incite fear in him because look what happened. That something, would cause, something would cause him to react and to stop the advancement of the kingdom of God long enough to be distracted and to go talk with the enemy. That was the plan. Now remember it said, there is a rumor among the nations. Rumor has it, Nehemiah, everybody's talking about it, that you're a loser. I mean, it's reported in all the places that you can, it's reported in culture, it's reported in pornography, it's reported in every vile, evil avenue that Satan has to send messages to your mind, and it's all laced with lies. Now, if you asked Eve why she took a bite of the apple, she would say, I was deceived, which is exactly what she said. The tricky thing about being deceived, listen to me, listen. The tricky thing about being deceived is that you don't know when you're being deceived. You don't know it. Some of you this morning are being deceived and you don't know it. You can't recognize it. Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, but I'm not surprised even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He's fully capable of presenting himself as an angel of light. The good guy, the one who has the answer, the one you, you think you can put your trust in. And it's so very important as a church and as the people of God that we ask God to give us discernment to know what voice we are listening to. Let the church say amen. So in verse 6, we see the enemy speaking to Nehemiah. According to the, his reports, you, you're planning on being their king, Nehemiah. Lie. He also reports that you've appointed prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim about you. Look, there's a king in Judah. Lie. And then here's where we see him really throw the dagger at Nehemiah. And please remember that Nehemiah was the cupbearer, very trusted position to the king, King Artaxerxes. He was a cupbearer. So, so here's what they're saying. We're going to tell your boss. We're going to tell him these lies. You can be very sure that this report is going to get back to the king. So I suggest that you come now and talk it over with us. So Nehemiah, here are all the lies. And in fact, if you don't come to meet us and clear up this whole rumor, then word is going to get back 
to your boss, the one you serve. Truth number six. I only have about 45 more, okay? (laughs) Truth number six. The enemy's primary weapon is fear. Would you say that out loud? I really should change that. In fact, it is always fear. Fear is an incredible motivator. Fear will always drive you to do things. Have you ever really thought about how much stuff you do that you would not normally do because you're motivated by fear? Because if I don't do this, then I'm afraid that That's why the enemy comes to strike us with fear because it will get us to do what he wants us to do. San Ballot said, rumor is, do you want to become the king? And the real king is about to find out. We're going to tell him. So all you need to do, Nehemiah, is leave what you're doing. Come meet with us. There's two things I want us to recognize about fear. Fear makes us stop the work. Fear makes us stop what God has us doing. This is why the devil wants you to be fearful. If he can get you afraid, then you'll stop the work of the kingdom. Because in order for you to engage, hear me, in order for you to engage in fear, you must disengage with advancing the kingdom of God. You don't get to do both at the same time. You cannot do both. You cannot advance the kingdom of God with fear. That's the truth this morning. So Satan's purpose is to get you to engage with fear, which will necessitate that you disengage with advancing the kingdom of God. The second thing you need to know about fear is fear drives us to, drives us to consult with the devil. He was trying to get Nehemiah to go consult with the enemy. So I, I will strike you with fear, Nehemiah, Then all you need to do is come and talk to me. Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll get you through this, Nehemiah. Come on. Come on, brother. We're going to help you. We'll make sure that the king knows that you're not really trying to work against him. I know it's what everybody's saying. We'll we'll help you. We're going to be there. Oh, the deception. Oh, the lies. And we need to know that when we consult with the enemy, we are essentially saying to God, God, I don't really need your help in this. I found somebody else that can help me through this. I think I've got this one. I'll take care of this this time. But here's what we need to know. If fear is what you feel, then the enemy has your ear. Dan, that was good. They didn't think so, but it's good. If fear is what you feel, then the enemy has your ear. If you are gripped by fear, it is not the Lord. If peace is what you feel, then God has your ear. Somebody say hallelujah. Verse 9, then I'm almost done. Just hang on. Then the Lord God called to the man, Adam. Where are you? Oh, this is in Genesis. Genesis, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 3, verses 9, talking about fear. Then the Lord God called to the man, Adam, where are you? And Adam replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid. Why? Because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? The Lord God asked. Look what happened. The enemy caused Adam to become fearful. And because of his fear, it drove him to consult with the enemy. That's why God had to say, who have you been talking to? Who told you that you were naked? You found counsel with the enemy and not with me. 
Fear will always drive you to consult with things you should not be consulting. Think of this. The very first act of Satan on earth was deception with Eve. We talked about that a while ago. And his next act right after that was to introduce fear and shame. Deception, fear, and shame. And guess what? Here we are thousands of years later. It's the same story, the same tactic, the very same thing. He starts with deception and then comes fear and shame. I told you he does not have a very expansive playbook. And Nehemiah's response is critical for our understanding today. Verse 8, he says, I replied, there is no truth in any part of your story. You're making this whole thing up. It would seem to me that Nehemiah had the good sense and the spiritual discernment to know how to take a step back and process this whole thing. Now, wait a minute. I'm doing a good work, doing what God's called me to do. The enemy keeps sending me the same message over and over. If I go down and consult with those guys, I won't be able to finish this work. I haven't hung the doors yet. need to do that. I'm vulnerable to the enemy, so I, I shouldn't walk away from the work. And he came to the resolve that you and I need to come to. Every word that has ever come out of the enemy's mouth is a straight-up lie. Looking right back at the enemy to say, nothing you are saying to me is true. But in order for you to be able to do that, you have to know the truth. I said you have to know the truth. And the only source of truth is the Word of God. So for every lie that the enemy comes to you with, you must have the truth to present back to him because here's the very last one, truth number seven, because the enemy has no reply to the truth. None. He has no reply to the truth. None. It's why you need to know the truth. It's why we encourage you every week to get in the word of God. You've got to know the truth because he cannot reply to that. Paul gives us in 2 Corinthians 10, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Basically there the scripture is saying this, when that foul thought comes in your mind, it's not unique to you, you spin that thing around, you grab its hands and put it behind you. You handcuff those things and you escort it right out of the door of your mind. That's taking every thought captive. We make that thought obedient to the truth of Christ. Every lie he tries to get you, you take it captive to the obedience of Christ. Hallelujah. And this final verse is what really got my attention. It's Nehemiah's concluding thought. Thank you for your patience with me today. I'm going to wrap this up real quickly. Verse 9, they were just trying to intimidate us, imagining that they could discourage us and stop the work. Oh, I'm so tired. I'm so discouraged. I can't go on. I've got nothing more to give to the advancement of the kingdom of God. I, can't, I just, man, there's no more gas left in the tank. But I love Nehemiah's response. So. I continued the work with even greater determination. Some verses read it this way. Strengthen my hands for the task. 
Strengthen my hands for the task. I'm not going to succumb to the lies of the enemy. I'm going to stand strong. God, strengthen my hands for the task. Give me the strength I need to do the work. Give me the strength I need to understand and be aware of the devil's devices and to counterattack with the truth of God's word. And I leave you, Bethesda, with the word that I sense the Lord wants you to hear today. Because I know what it is to be tired. I told you I had an EGR week. So I'm preaching to Dan like I always do. But here's the word we stand on today. You are strong enough to finish the work. You are strong enough to fight for your marriage. You're strong enough to raise those kids. You're strong enough to manage those finances well. You are strong because greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Stand to your feet.